men throughout history have always needed a link between younger generations and older generations. And that what's been lacking since the Industrial Revolution, the last hundred years or so, is that uh, men have been off in offices and factories. So they haven't been around to raise their sons. You've got some yet to do. Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks Podcast. I'm Connor Beaton. Man Talks Podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and of course, business. Imagine having expert mentors with decades of wisdom delivered right to your ears. Today, we have an expert on masculinity and on brotherhood, Mr. Phil T. Mistelberger. Phil was born in Montreal in 1959 and was educated at John Abbott College and Concordia University. He is the author of four critically acclaimed books and has worked as a transpersonal therapist and personal growth workshop facilitator for the past 30 plus years, teaching in Vancouver and in numerous major cities around the world. He has been involved in men's groups since the early 1990s and in 1996 founded the Samurai Brotherhood, a community for conscious men. Today is a special episode because we are going to focus in on masculinity and the evolution of men. Phil has a background in men's studies and he has been able to work with men for the past 30 plus years. He's got an interesting insight and we'll bring in some relationship dynamics. We will talk about the dynamics between men and women, how to have a successful, openly communicative relationship with your partner. We'll talk about some of the pitfalls that some men face, and we'll talk about finding purpose in your life. Phil will also bring in a really interesting insight into the history and the evolutionary side of how men have actually evolved and developed. So without any further ado, Mr. Phil Mistelberger. All right. So, Phil, thanks very much for uh, joining us on the Man Talks podcast. It's a pleasure to to have you here. You're welcome, Connor. My pleasure to be here with you. All right. So let's let's dive into it. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about um, what you do uh, and and why you do it? Maybe maybe a defining moment that kind of shaped your journey towards what you currently do now. Well, I would say uh, I'm a transpersonal therapist and um, uh, a personal growth coach and uh, a mentor, a lot of men. I've worked with uh, many women. I've been involved in transformational work since I was in my early 20s. I'm currently 57. So that's 35 years that I've been involved in the work. Um, And initially, I was pulled very strongly to the esoteric traditions, both East and West, but especially the Eastern traditions. So I went off to India in the mid-1980s. And uh, did the typical sort of uh, exotic romantic journey um, through the Himalayan uh, valleys and in search of Buddhist monasteries and found them and studied with mystics and masters and uh, came back and was being trained as a a therapist in the late 1980s um, and did that work for several years. Uh, And then in the early 1990s, a good friend of mine, an older guy, uh, approached me, told me about a men's uh, group that he was involved in. And initially, I had 
resistance to being involved in this in this sort of work because I couldn't see quite the point of it. I was more I was more interested in transgender work, meaning beyond polarity, uh, the al- the alchemical idea of going beyond polarity by integrating it. So I was interested in spiritual enlightenment, in other words, uh, oneness with the cosmos and all the stuff that many of the young seekers of my generation, the 1970s and 80s, were very much into. Um, so I was reluctant and resistant and skeptical about this uh, men's group that I was uh, uh, informed about in the early 1990s. But I trusted the guy that that ultimately ended up being my sponsor for that for that group. Um, and so I did this weekend, and uh, and I had a profound experience in this two day weekend. And the the upshot of it was that I realized that I had a lot of uh, unhealed business with with my own patrilineal ancestry. So going back to my father, uh, my own ancestors um, uh, on both sides of my family, the male sides, um, relationships with men in general. And there was a whole lot of work to do in that area, which uh, affected my own personal journey. So as I embarked on that, getting involved in that work, I discovered a, a whole new layer of passion for working with men in uh, in transformational work. Uh, now, I had a background in martial arts prior to that. I'd studied Wing Chun, uh, Wing Chun Kung Fu and Shito Ryo Karate in the early 19, mid-1970s. Caught up in the whole Kung Fu craze at that time with David Carradine, um, uh, Bruce Lee, you know, that whole thing back in the 1970s. Um, and so I had combining this experience I had with martial arts and my training there, along with my introduction to the men's transformational work in the so-called men's movement in the early 1990s, caught some fire for me. And so I started a, uh, a men's group in the mid to late 1990s called it the Samurai Brotherhood based on the traditions of the Samurai Warrior and uh, periodically uh, uh, rebooted that community over the years, uh, most recently a year and a half ago here in Vancouver, and uh, currently have somewhere around 35, 40 guys, members of this community, um, mostly younger guys, millennial generation guys, born after 1985, I would say. Uh, and so I find I have a great deal of uh, uh, passion for this work. Um, I've always been very concerned with the state of masculine consciousness on the planet in the past couple of decades because uh, men throughout history have tended to be creatures of extremes, accomplishing extraordinary things and doing extraordinarily destructive things at the same time. And most of the destructive things done on the planet right now by uh, by people tend to be done by uh, the male gender. It's no secret. And a lot of these very destructive things are often done by younger men being guided by older men. Mm. And so uh, on that note, uh, a, a very strong influence me was Robert Bly's book, Iron John, which came out around 1990. And his premise was very simple. Uh, he put forward the idea that, uh, which was not unique to him, but he put it forward in such an idea that made it very um, uh, accessible for the mainstream, let's say, which is why his book became a New York Times bestseller. He put forward the idea that uh, men throughout history have always needed a link between younger generations and older generations. And that what's been lacking since the Industrial Revolution, the last hundred years or so, is that uh, men have been off in offices and factories. So they haven't been around to raise their sons. And uh, boys have been largely raised by mothers. Uh, and even if the father was a presence, he was often a marginal physical presence. He'd be tired after work. Um, he didn't have a whole lot of energy for, uh, you know, for for spending time with his son, and that's obviously not always 
the case. There are exceptions. But as a general trend, I found this to be true. Um, it, it, it was true in my own family system. Uh, I had a lot of healing and uh, in terms of my own process that I had to do with, as I said, the, you know, the male ancestry lines in my own family system, which I embarked on and which I did. Um, and in the course of all of that, uh, discovering a great deal of satisfaction in, in, in working with men over the past 20 years in this area. Wonderful. So, I mean, there's a, there's kind of a lot, there's a lot to unpack there, which I think is fantastic. And, um, you know, the work, the work that you do, um, is, is different yet similar to, to what we do with man talks. And, you know, I think that they exist for very similar purposes. And, um, I'm curious as to what, you know, you've, you've kind of been privy to this unfolding for, you know, the past couple of decades of working with men and, and getting to see insight into maybe what they were challenged with or striving towards, you know, maybe in the eighties and nineties versus what they're really struggling with right now and, and why they maybe come to you and why this community exists. So let's dive into that. You know, what, what do you see a lot of guys really grappling with nowadays, whether it's something that they want to build or something that they're struggling with internally? Well, in some ways, the themes are very similar in terms of men, uh, needing to access, uh, what we call the deep masculine, the masculine core, um, and, and, and find out just what that's all about so they can have that sort of masculine structure in their life, that sense of what I call solar power, which is going outwards in life towards things, uh, exhibiting boldness and um, uh, initiative and uh, not holding back for concern of what others will think about them, uh, but heading outward in life, a sense of straightness and direction, which I attributed with masculine archetypes. Um, in terms of the differences, uh, there's something going on now that was not very apparent and it was not really apparent at all in the 1980s. And it's what I call the phenomenon of the 21st century distracted man, <laughs> which is, uh, no secret where that's coming from. Um, the extraordinary advances in communication technology, social networking, uh, so forth, um, allows for people to uh, access a tremendous number of relationships. And I'm not just talking about Facebook and the whole friend phenomenon, but the entire uh, communication network that uh, younger people, uh, including younger men, obviously are privy to. And so this results, what I've noticed, this results in a, a broad spectrum of relationships, like broad contact, but superficial in terms of depth. Uh, back in the day, back in the 1970s and 80s, uh, you know, to, to contact somebody, you had to pick up a landline or go and knock on their door or ring a buzzer, right? Yeah. Uh, the, it's interesting, you know, the, the telephone, when it was invented, you know, well over 100 years ago, um, the word phony comes from telephone. A lot of people don't realize this because when the people are having their initial contacts on the phone back in the, you know, way back in the early 20th century, late 19th century, uh, they found the communication very strange because they couldn't see the person. They were just hearing a voice in a, in a mechanism. And so that's where the word phony came from. It was described as a phony communication because it was through the telephone. Um, now that, you know, was the primary means of communication up until the 1990s, late 19, or 1990s or thereabouts. Uh, so guys back in those times had to be a little more, uh, let's say, take initiatives if they wanted to connect with somebody. You know, if they wanted to connect with a girl or a, a male friend or a family member, they had to actually pick up a landline phone. And even, you know, answer machines were not very common even in the 1980s. They sort of became common in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Um, so you had to take an initiative. Now, because communication is so sophisticated, so advanced, 
it's, uh, it takes very little effort for somebody to send a message to someone else. You know, tap a few keys on a, on a smartphone and there's your message uh, with no concern whether the other person will, will respond right away or not. In fact, most people tend not to answer their phones nowadays, as you know. Uh, so this creates a, a, a propensity towards a certain laziness or a certain laissez-faire, uh, ultra-laid-back sort of um, uh, disposition that I find in a lot of younger men, millennial men generation. Uh, and so it's sometimes described as um, many millennial men generation are lacking grit, G-R-I-T, grit, uh, which is partly the result of having things made so easy for them. Right? Also, many millennial generation men were raised by parents who were of the hippie generation, my generation, the baby boomers, um, and a little bit prior to that. And because that generation, the baby boomers, were raised by the war generation, we were raised, you know, very trying circumstances. Discipline was a much higher level. Uh, the general ethic was to be seen and not heard. Uh, so parents from my generation tended to go to the polar opposite, which was to uh, spoil their kids, to use very straight language, um, to, you know, and of course I'm generalizing here, but by and large, uh, millennial generation people often have to work with this sense of entitlement. But combined with the fact that real estate is super expensive now, that's that, that works against them. So you have this combination of entitlement plus underlying resentment at not being not having a great deal of freedom because everything is so expensive. Uh, cost of living, certainly this city is very expensive. Uh, uh, back in the 70s and 80s, real estate was very cheap. Um, so that was never a, a concern. You could use your extra income to go traveling or what have you, mm -hmm. um, do other things. So I find there's this combination uh, in current times with younger men in particular of resentment around their economic situation and uh, combined with a sense of entitlement of uh, uh, in addition to this almost being spoiled by the technology, being so easy to communicate with people, but not necessarily taking initiatives in life. Mm -hmm. So in, a, in my own men's groups, as you know, it's called the Samurai Brotherhood. And so I draw on the tradition of the ancient warrior uh, cultures, not just the samurai, but other ones as well. Um, and uh, extracting the best from those traditions and bringing it into the men's groups. For example, the samurai uh, uh, had three traditionally three main qualities that they used to, um, as their, you know, as their code of living. One was loyalty and the loyalty was not necessarily to a person, to a samurai superior. It was more to a, a cause, let's say a worthy cause. And then the other one was bravery, uh, boldness in life going forward. And then the third one was aesthetics. So samurai were known to, you know, for their bamboo flutes and their writing haiku poetry and so forth. So they were these, uh, rough and tumble warriors that were trained in physical arts, but they also had a sense of uh, mystical attunement with the cosmos mm. uh, combined with this boldness and loyalty. It's a very honorable traits. And uh, in our modern culture, I mean, warriorship often amounts basically for many young guys to, you know, watching MMA fighting on YouTube or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Or watching a hockey game. It's all vicarious. Uh, there are men that train in martial arts nowadays, for sure. In my own community, we have a group of guys that do martial arts, um, and, and they get together once in a while to practice martial arts with each other. But uh, there is this real tendency to observe life nowadays, not participate in it, mm -hmm. like one giant reality show. Uh, I mean, entertainment is everywhere. Entertainment yeah. possibilities are, are endless now. But this does, this really works against the masculine warrior spirit, which is all about participation in life, getting involved in life. I mean, one of the things, it, it sounds like almost different 
uh, verbiage, but a, a very same conversation to one of the, you know, one of the things that we often talk about with within man talks and the mastermind groups, which is which is the sense of purpose, which is direction. And, you know, the other thing that you kind of touched on there was this idea of the deep masculine, right? And from what I extracted from that, it sounds like a almost like a balancing of those polarities that you're talking about, the the softer sides and and maybe sort of those those more um, subtler sides, but also the the sort of hardness or the not harshness, but the the sort of grit that you spoke of. And so, you know, would you say that a lot of the guys that that you work with or or that come into the community are sort of on this journey to finding out how to balance one of those sides maybe they're they're you know a little bit too much on one side and they're just trying to find their way into the middle or or what's your experience absolutely absolutely no question that's what they're seeking and i can say without any hesitation that the vast majority of them are on the feminine side Mm -hmm. and so they're learning to develop their masculine core more Mm -hmm. uh, especially here in this in this part of the world i'm not from here originally i was born and raised in montreal i came here in 1984 so i've been here for a long time but there's no question there's a different vibe here there's a different uh, uh, cultural space here and it's morphing and changing all the time but it, it, there's no question things here are much more laid back than they are than they are back east people back east tend to be a little more intense uh, there's a little more and i'm going to really generalize here but there's a little more male energy back east here there tends to be a little more female energy on the west coast so i find guys here tend to incline towards a softness now when robert bligh talked about the deep masculine what he meant was very much what you were talking about it was a combination of qualities uh, he tells the story in Iron John. It's based on the myth of Iron Hans, which is an 1820s German myth from the Grimm brothers, as you know. And uh, in that story, um, it's useful to recount it. Uh, there's a, a bunch of hunters and knights are going off into going out into a forest, and they're not returning. One by one, they're just disappearing. And uh, one day, uh, uh, the king of the realm has a very special hunter who goes out there with his dog. He's going to solve the problem. And is the hunter and the dog come to a, uh, to a small uh, lake or pond or something, and a hand reaches up and grabs his dog and pulls him under, and the dog drowns. And the man realizes there's something strange going on with this lake, so he goes back to the king's castle. He comes back with a bunch of guys, all with buckets, and they empty out the lake. And they find underneath the lake a hairy wild man, and he's covered in, in sort of rusty red hair, and he's... Uh, he, you know, he's, he's quite the beast. And uh, they capture him, put him in a cage, and bring him back to the king's uh, castle. And he stays in this cage. And um, one day, a boy is playing with his ball. He's the prince of the kingdom. He's playing with his ball, and his ball accidentally rolls into the cage, and the wild man takes it. And the boy says, I want my ball back. And the, and the, and the wild man says, I will not give it to you until you let me out of this cage. And he says, and the key to the cage is under your mother's pillow. So the boy has to go and get the key under his mother's pillow. He lets the wild man out. The wild man then takes him into the woods and says, I will take you off on a journey and initiate you into manhood. And basically, that's the story. And uh, the symbolism there is incredibly rich. And Bly just, you know, he was a poet, so he just jumped on this stuff and made it into a, a really good book. Uh, but the key part of that whole story is that the key for the wild man's, ca- wild man's cage is in under the pillow of the boy's mother. And so it represents... Uh, a stage that every man goes through in life. He has to, in a sense, differentiate from the mother. He has to break away from the mother in order to establish his masculine identity. Uh, You also find this in the myth of the Holy Grail, where Percival, 
uh, lives in the forest with his mother. And one day, three shining knights come into the forest, and he's mesmerized by these shining knights. And he says, who are you? And he says, we are uh, members of the round table, and we are on a search for the Holy Grail. And he says, I want to follow you, but his mother won't let him leave. And for good reason, because in that myth, uh, she'd lost three or four of her sons in battle, and she didn't want to lose her last son. It was like a Saving Private Ryan story. Um, but she lets him go under one condition, that he will always treat women well. And that's the beginning of the Code of Chivalry, uh, where a warrior treats women well. Uh, so he goes off, and he becomes a knight of the round table, and he is the one that ends up finding the grail because he has the purity of heart that enables him to find the grail. But the key piece, again, was he had to break away from the mother. And she gave him a, f a final teaching when he did, and she said, go off, be the warrior that you can be, just remember to always treat women well. Mm -hmm. Iron John has, is very similar in its, in its mythology. And uh, it is extremely applicable to modern men because so many modern men were raised largely under the umbrella, psychic umbrella of their mother. Uh, and so they deal often with this internal issue, which is that in order to be a, a powerful, successful, fulfilled, actualized man in the world, uh, they have to be their own man. And in order to do that, they have to break free of what psychology calls introjection. So introjection is the opposite of projection. Projection, I see something out there that's really in me. Introjection is to be controlled by the voices of the past that are still inside of you. So for many men, they still are run by the voice of the mother inside of them that's telling them to be a nice guy and a good boy like mothers do. That's largely what they do. There's nothing wrong with that, but if the masculine piece is missing, if he doesn't have the knights of the round table to follow and go off with, if he doesn't have the hairy wild man in the cage to take him out into the woods and teach him how to be a man, he remains emotionally allegiant and bond bonded to his mother his whole life, but nothing beyond that. And so uh, he doesn't acquire that grit that uh, the masculine can give him. Mm -hmm. So the ideal is to have both. The uh, good values that his mother can give him, uh, in, which in most cases is the case, and the grit that he can get from the masculine. So if the father's not there, what he can, where he can get that from is the community of older men. And this is often the piece that's lacking. And this is why I set, you know, a standard in my, in my own Samurai Brotherhood to have both older guys and younger guys, because the, the younger guys outnumber the older guys currently, but the older guys are really important. And, uh, you know, some of my group, some of the older guys are a bit ornery and they have some attitude. And sometimes some of the guys ask me, how come you don't call the older guys and stuff the way you call the younger guys and stuff? And I said, well, the older guys are important. We need them, you know, to 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 serve as some sort of a, uh, a lamp post, you know, mm -hmm. a, a, a guide light for some of these younger guys. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's two, um, two important things in there. And thank you so much for telling the story because I think that's, you know, Iron John is, is a, is a classic and it's, it's something that, um, you know, if you're out there listening and you're, you're curious about some of this, definitely go pick it up and, and give it a read, uh, or get it on audible or something like that and, and listen to it if you're not a reader and you're more of a listener, uh, since you're listening to a podcast. But, um, I kind of wanted to dive into, to two things. One, um, you know, why is, why is the sense of, brotherhood and camaraderie so important how does it help men and and two you know we've we've kind of touched on this idea of you know moving from that sort of softer sense of masculinity into into developing a deeper sense of grit and it's definitely something that i see a lot within the men who come into our community as well they're they're looking for that and um there's almost a little bit of like 
not shame, but there's just this unknowing of how do I differentiate between developing grit and determination, these kinds of, you know, good qualities and between something like aggression, like where's the line in there? How do I cultivate those things? And so I would love to kind of dive into, you know, what do you do to help the guys in your community develop that sense of deep masculine or develop that sense of grit? Well, I mean, we do a lot of things in our in our meetings for sure. Um, you know, everything from arm wrestling matches and sumo wrestling to uh, very very vulnerable uh, sharing of you know very delicate topics that uh, are consistent with say group psychotherapy. So there's a lot of things we touch on, um, uh, but the sense of balance is uh, is tricky to generalize about that because it's so much it's so unique to each individual. Um, but what I can say is that the, the the brotherhood aspect is very important. Now, typically throughout history, brotherhoods have not always formed for the best reasons, as you know. I mean, there was a joke, joke about the Freemasons a hundred years ago, something like one third of every man in the United States around the year 1900 was a Freemason. Um, and it was the joke was that it was a glorified boys club, but they got together so they could have time off from their women, right? Uh, th- th- that's not all a joke. There is some some semblance of truth in that. I often say that if you have 10 women in a room and you bring in one man to, into, the, into that room, unless he's some extraordinary guy or some celebrity or something, there's not much of a change of the tonal quality of the room. Uh, the women, if they're connected to each other, will sort of remain connected. You reverse that scenario. You have 10 guys in a room, bring in one woman. It almost doesn't matter who the woman is. The energy changes completely. The guys lose their focus, lose their distraction uh, because they have this programming. A lot of men have this programming that their sense of worth in life comes from what they can do for people mm. and in particular what they can do for women. So uh, the patriarchy throughout history has had a vested interest in uh, in having in reinforcing this kind of uh, dynamic that, uh, that, that, that a man believes that he's uh, responsible for a woman's happiness, and he's also responsible for her unhappiness. Either way, he's always responsible. Um, this is uh, was illustrated beautifully in uh, John Milton's uh, Paradise Lost that he wrote in the 1600s, where he um, delves into the, uh, the story in the Garden of Eden. And uh, the way he explains it is that um, uh, God had this pact with Adam and Eve that they would not eat from the tree of knowledge. And the serpent comes in, and he gives an extraordinarily seductive uh, line of reasoning to Eve. He says to her that, how can you tell the difference between good and evil if you've never tasted of either one of them, or you've never tasted of the dark side of, and so, and, and, and she comes to believe this is a sound line of reasoning. So she eats from the tree of knowledge and breaks the contract with God. Now, Adam comes in and he finds out that she's done this and he's in distress because he's terrified he's going to lose his partner. So he eats from the tree of knowledge also. And according to Milton, his interpretation of that. Adam is the greater sinner because he sinned knowingly, whereas Eve was seduced by the serpent. She was tricked. Now, uh, whatever you think of that, it, it, it is these kind of legends and myths that contribute to the idea that men are responsible for women and their state of mind, but not necessarily the other way around. And so uh, many men uh, throughout history and in, certainly in current times go through life not unwittingly the inheritors of this uh, this programming, this conditioning, which serves to keep women invisible and uh, to keep them uh, with a sense, an overinflated sense of their own, their own self-importance. 
is that outwardly they're either overinflated or inwardly they're the opposite of that, which is suffering from crippling low self-esteem and lack of confidence and lack of trusting themselves in their relations with women or with other men. Uh, so these are all uh, issues that we address in our in our in our group work, and uh, you know I create a safe, confidential environment for men to talk openly about these issues, uh, particularly to talk about these extremes of arrogance, masculine arrogance, which can be extraordinarily destructive, and the other side of that, masculine low self esteem and self loathing, which can be arguably even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and how to come to, uh, the, you know, where, where arrogance gets transformed into confidence and where low self-esteem uh, gradually becomes, uh, uh, you know, a sense of self-acceptance, begins with self-acceptance. Mm-hmm. So on that note, uh, men also have to come to terms with their internal beasts. Now, it's interesting that according to some scientific studies, uh, testosterone levels have been declining over the past uh, uh, several decades. Uh, you can research these studies online. These are, these are legitimate studies. Um, there's different arguments for what might be behind that. Some people think it's just related to obesity. Um, who knows? But one of the results is, uh, men inclining towards less boldness in life, less risk taking, less initiative taking. And so moving from that polarity of arrogance to the other side of low self-esteem and self, uh, self deprecation, self doubt. Um, neither one of which works very well for them mm-hmm. in their lives. And so we address these extremes. And uh, as with the ancient principles of alchemy and psychology, we seek to integrate the extremes to come to a state of balance. So that's what the deep masculine is. A, a man who is in touch with his ability to take initiatives and risks in life and be bold, but at the same time is not an insensitive brute. Right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a fine balance, right? Because I think, you know, from from the men that I've worked with and that, that are part of the community, there's this drive to be sort of like a, a provider or a protector. And so they, they end up, as you mentioned, kind of taking on that responsibility um, for somebody else's happiness because it's, it's like, oh, I want to provide, I want to protect in some way, shape or form. And it ends up kind of turning into this um, misguided intention right, where they take on responsibility for somebody else's emotional state. And um, it, it, it can be a challenge. For, so for the people that are out there listening, you know, maybe that sparks something for them where they're like, oh, yeah, I, I definitely do that. I, you know, I oftentimes will take ownership or responsibility over my partner's uh, emotional state. What's something that they can kind of do once they've kind of become aware of that to shift that internal narrative or that context well, in their life? Well, uh, men in particular incline towards being loners. Uh, and so I, I encourage men to get involved in community of some sort, even if it's just um, a martial arts uh, organization or something, uh, to connect with other men in a quality way. See, men have this tendency to boast and compete. So when they get together, it's often to measure the size of their instruments, so to speak. You know, they're, we used to call their ball handling activities, right? Yeah. Your collections, yeah. you know, who's got, who, you know, what are you doing and your hobbies and so forth? Or So it, men have a tendency to talk about things, to talk about business, to talk about sports, talk about women. It's a tendency to objectify things. Whereas women are a little more skilled in just getting together and talking about sharing their lives with each other. Uh, so I encourage men in particular to seek out community, to, to, to move beyond that sense of isolation. And if you look at even the most destructive men in history, 
or current times, like terrorists and what have you, um, uh, you know, there's been some studies done on, on this kind of mindset that often accompanies these kind of uh, you know, destructive acts. And usually what you find underneath it all is a, a variation of a lone wolf type of mentality. And even ones that work in groups together, they call them cells, for example, right? There's the reason why they call them cells, because they're all sort of distinct and separate and isolated, right? Uh, you know, with this sort of loose association with each other. But that's, we're talking about some of the darker stuff. This stuff applies also to many modern men in their own ways. They have their little cells in terms of their uh, very small social milieus with their buddy they'll go and have a beer with and talk crap with, basically, or, or you know, basically just essentially compete with each other uh, or boast about things or what have you, or um, cry into their beer with each other. Although that's probably more therapeutic than anything. Uh, but what is often lacking is a clarity around self-worth. Like, where does your worth come from? And for men, for many men, their sense of self-worth is, is tied up in their activities, what they can do for other people. That's why a man's greatest Achilles heel is to be criticized for his actions. You know, why did you take the garbage out this way? Why didn't you take it out that way? Um, generally speaking, for women, the Achilles heel tends to be more to be criticized for their feelings. Why are you feeling this way? Why don't you feel this way? You should be happy right now. The old story that uh, is talked about of a man and a woman that go on a fishing trip. They come back and the woman complains about the fishing trip and the fishing rod. And the man says, well, I'll just buy a new fishing rod. And she says, you're not listening to me. It's not about the bloody fishing rod. You're not hearing me. <laughs> she wants to be validated. She wants to be heard for what's going on for her. And he just wants to fix the problem because he's solution-oriented. But so many men who are solution-oriented or problem-oriented suffer from this chronic lack of self-worth and where are they getting this from because they don't get this from women so much because they're too busy trying to impress the women or answer problems or solve things for them so this is where they need other men mm -hmm. this was Bly's point and this was uh, touched on by Michael Mead and Robert uh, Gillette and, and uh, uh, Douglas Gillette and Robert Moore uh, and, and many other writers in the you know in the men's movement literature um who have hit upon this essential idea that there's something that men can only get from other men, but what kind of quality are they getting from other men, right? So to get it from other men by, uh, you know, uh, commiserating or joining some sort of very negative organization is not what we're talking about, right? It's getting it from other men in a positive way, but mm -hmm. what are they getting? They're getting a sense of validation around their masculinity, mm -hmm. that their self-worth doesn't come just from what they can do for other people. Yeah, so it's it's about moving the the narrative between them and and the other guys that are in their life away from just like that measuring stick contest, right? Because you know, I, I I you know I grew up in in Alberta, and a lot of that was very prevalent. It was like, how many medals did you win in hockey? How much money are you making? What's the size of your house? What car are you driving? And and that was a very common theme of conversation. It was a normal conversation. It was just those sort of surface level things. And oftentimes it didn't go really beyond that. And, you know, the, the whole, one of the biggest reasons why man talks even exists is to create a dialogue amongst men that goes beyond that conversation, meaningful conversations, much like this. And so I, I guess my question is, you know, you've, you've touched on the idea of 
being able to build that that brotherhood and that camaraderie as an important piece of building self-worth within a man. What are some of the other important factors? Like how how big of a factor is having mentorship? You talked about having older men in your life. Um, how, you know, how important is that? And and what are sort of the other keys, you know, for the people out there that are are really wanting to build that internal sense of self-worth, which is ultimately yeah, confidence? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the values of younger men uh, having connections with older men is that there tends to be less competition involved. So guys of similar age, peer, uh, peer groups tend to be more competitive with each other. Um, but a guy who say around 25 or 30 connecting with a guy who's around 50 or so forth, the competition is not so much of an issue because first of all, the older guy tends to, he's done a lot of that stuff. He doesn't really care so much. He's got other values. And the younger guy realized there's nothing really to prove so much for the older guy. What's the point? Because he's at a different place in his life, right? So when that competitive thing is relaxed, there's more of a possibility that an older guy can can do the one thing that is most important for, for him to do with the younger guys, which is exp- demonstrate curiosity, active curiosity in a younger guy's life, because that's the thing that's often lacking. Uh, Many older guys lack curiosity about younger guys because they're too full of themselves or they're too full of their own accomplishments or they're just getting lazy and tired and they want to look at TV. Uh, and uh, many younger guys um, lack that being confirmed and validated by older guys because they're just not in their lives or they see older guys as this kind of uh, cloak of authoritarianism, right? Mm-hmm. Let's face it, most of the power structures in the world, most of the power positions in the world are inhabited by older men. Not all, but most of them are. And um, so when younger guys are not healed with older men or not trusting of older men, they often have a conspiratorial mindset. They, they're always suspicious. Uh, you know, I mean, more, more sort of exaggerated, ludicrous examples are, you know, did we really land on the moon? <laughs> Who really knocked the tower do- towers down on 9-11? Who's spraying things over our head all the time? You know, and I'm not even talking about the right or wrongness of, the, of these, you know, these topics. I'm just saying that the theme is always the same. Somebody's always doing something to you. And Freud, you know, would have had a, a, a heyday with this stuff because uh, he, this was his whole, one of his main arguments was that a person's uh, lack of success in life or actualization in life often traces back to unhealed issues with the father mm. and gets projected in all the, all the authority structures of the world. Um, and this can be very, very damaging for younger men because they can't progress in life if they can't form relationships with older men because older men are running most of the things of the world. So you have the odd younger guy like a Mark Zuckerman, you know, or, or some of these guys, uh, Steve Jobs was young when he had his successes. Albert Einstein had his big realizations when he was in his mid twenties, but these are very few and far between except, uh, you know, exceptions to the rule. Most younger guys need to form some relationship with older guys in order to progress in life. Mm-hmm. And even even Steve Jobs, for example, you know, he really started to come into his own and thrive when Apple hired an older, more tenured CEO to actually run the company. And, you know, there was a huge power struggle between them eventually because they, you know, Jobs was kind of going off and trying to do things on his own on his own tangent. But admittedly, he says that that was one of the most growth oriented phases of his life. Where, you know, even though Apple ended up letting him go and that was the period of time where he moved away from the company, when he did come back, he was much more experienced and grounded because of the lessons that he had had through that experience. And, you know, even in my own personal life, I think the the guys that I've had who were older mentors along the way have offered insight and 
and value in, in ways that I, I would never have thought of, right? Because they've kind of gone through that period in their life and they, they offer insight and uh, challenge, which I think is, is a, a thing that maybe let's talk, let's touch on challenge. Cause I think I feel as though often, you know, our, my generation and, and the generation that's come after me oftentimes is trying to avoid challenge or being challenged by other people. Uh, how important do you think that is for men? Oh, it's extremely important. Extremely important. You know, I mean, I had a meeting recently. I have a Monday night group. We have about 25, 30 guys that gets together. And uh, there was a guy sharing with somebody else in the room and, and he was sort of on fire that night. So he was giving very strong feedback to guys. And um, somebody else said to him, you know, you're just giving shit to everyone tonight. And, and he started to apologize. And I stopped him and I said, wait a minute. You don't have to apologize. That's half the purpose of a men's group is to give shit to each other, <laughs> to to challenge each other, to get in each other's faces, to bring some fire into our relationships with each other because it's so often lacking. And uh, there's so much of emphasis on, you know, political correctness and tap dancing around issues. And uh, I mean, I'm not a right wing guy. You know, I'm a, I, a political correctness has its purpose in the world, obviously, but it gets out of balance at times, right? And you end up with a bunch of guys that are really afraid to just speak openly and straight about issues, some obvious issues that are dropped into the room at times, like huge white elephants that have to be addressed. And everyone's just sitting there very quietly listening. Somebody going to say something here. Uh, everyone knows any dynamic business to be successful needs to have, you know, good old come to Jesus meetings once in a while, right? Where the truth is just spoken. Mm -hmm. um, just put it on the table, just say it. And oftentimes when we put it on the table, uh, the geist, the German word for spirit, G-E-I-S-T, the geist, the spirit of the room, the spirit of the organization has a chance to sort of come in at that point. But, you know, if in a room full of guys, if one guy's afraid to say something, he never finds out what that spirit of the group would do with what he has to say. Mm -hmm. And usually it's something positive, yeah. uh, especially in a, in a, when the intention is positive for guys to get together to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a hugely important piece, and and from what I've seen within work environments or even friend dynamics between men, when they don't call each other out, it sort of takes on this lackadaisical feeling. You know, it's like very melancholy. It's a very bland uh, relationship, and it doesn't it often doesn't feel alive. And so, in group dynamics, whether it's you know within a team dynamic or with within a workplace dynamic, that can often be. Uh, extraordinarily powerful for for having that sense of aliveness aliveness within the group. As we just because we're moving towards wrapping up here, what what do you see the direction of sort of masculinity? You know, like there seems to be this sort of this little bit of a shift where a lot of men maybe are are experiencing what you talked about at the beginning of that sort of softness and and wanting to find their uh, you know, a space of being more well-rounded and integrating these pieces of grit and determination. What do you see looking forward for masculinity? Well, uh, there's no question we're at a, a defining point in the in the growth of this planet. Um, you know, what, we're actually, men have a, uh, obviously an integral, intrinsic role in things that they always, as they always have and will continue to do so. But um, uh, I think the essence is that we're going beyond blind competition, right? And moving into something different, uh, sometimes called cooperation without compromise. What does that actually mean to be able to cooperate without compromising? Sounds a bit extreme, but uh, there is some is some profound meaning to it. And the idea around not compromising means to follow a path with enthusiasm. 
you know, this word enthusiasm comes from the Greek word entheos, which meant to be filled with the divine. So originally to be an enthusiast was to be somebody who was filled with a tremendous lust and passion for life, right? And uh, that sense of uh, straightness uh, is is absolutely essential. And that's the non-compromising part. Like my uh, being is on fire for a passion that I want to accomplish in life that makes me feel really good about what I do. And then the cooperation part becomes essential because uh, in older times and, the, you know, the, the historical basis of many political um, uh, issues and warfare on the planet has all been, you know, based on a failure to cooperate and understand the greater picture of things, context, right? So now we're, we have the chance in the information age that we live in, the transparent age, to actually share and cooperate, but we've got to keep the non-compromising thing going as well, too which is to, to, to be truthful to one's own heart, uh, to follow a path with heart and, and to have a sense of destiny and ambition. And you learn along the way. So there's not, there's not, it's not a rigid thing, right? It, it, it adjusts, it goes through changes. Um, but there's got to be a sense of um, uh, uh, passion and straightforward direction. And the, those, are the, those are the pieces that end up, you know, a lot of guys will talk about legacy, right? And what am I leaving in the world? How am I making an impact in the world? You know, there's, and I think in the last sort of three or four decades, there's been, there's been this sort of big shift to how do I change the world, right? Like all the motivational posters out there, change, be the change you want to see the, in the world. And for that legacy piece, it sounds like that's the really that's sort of like the crux of it is find something that you are inherently passionate about. Look for spaces in order to collaborate with people, but be uncompromising around who you are and what you want to accomplish. And I, I think it's an interesting point because it's also for me, that's that kind of vision that oftentimes is, is lacking a little bit. Right. And, and maybe that, yeah, how much do you think that that contributes to this sort of sense of lostness that a lot of guys are experiencing? Well, it's very, it, you know, it's part of the metamorphosis the world is going through because the old form of legacy was to immortalize your name. Mm. Your name had to be immortalized, right? And now it's not so much about name anymore. Uh, now it's more about collective uh, creations together. Um, I mean, we're living in a spike in human population that may never be, uh, may never be the same again because I understand population predictions for 50 years from now, 100 years from now, are probably going to involve a decline of world population uh, it's, you know, of some sort. So right now, because 7.5, whatever it is, billion people on the planet, uh, this is really the era of relationship, right? If you can't make things work together, you have very little chance of making things work at all. Um, and so, and yet at the same time, there cannot be this there's still got to be this respect of what, you know, of what the masculine spirit actually is. So Aristotle had it connected with fire, for example. He compared, you know, the, the, the feminine element was water because of the ability to flow extraordinarily into each other. But fire was regarded as a masculine element. If you look at flames say in, a, in a fireplace, they're all like individual flames. They're together, but each are sort of unique. Mm-hmm. So that sort of masculine quality has to be maintained. But this time it's got to be done in relationship. This is very tricky. It's a whole new paradigm. There's no history for it. There's no pedigree for it. Uh, uh, we're creating this paradigm as we go along. And there are enormous challenges, but it's exciting to be part of that challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as we as we move forward, I think it's 
it's uh, a very interesting exploration. You know, it, it's something that is becoming, in my opinion, a little bit more mainstream for a lot of guys. It, it seemed as though, and, and you can correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, because I I wasn't necessarily um, there. Um, but, you know, during the 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s, this, this idea of, quote unquote, men's work was almost like an underground thing that was happening. Whereas, you know, men's work seems to be happening in a much more open environment now, or at least is starting to pop out into mainstream, in the mainstream eye. For sure, for sure. I mean, the, the first men's groups that began in the 1970s actually began as a, in, in reaction to the feminist movement uh, of uh, the second wave feminism, which was 1970s. First wave was in the 1920s when women got the vote. Second wave was 1970s, and it was brought about by the wide availability of the oral contraceptive pill in the 1960s is when that first began. So women had the choice as to whether they wanted to have a career or a family, which prior to that was not very, it was not particularly available. And so there was an empowering of the feminine that began to occur at that time, which was absolutely necessary and important, but men had different reactions to that. And so men initially got together, formed groups that were supporting the women's movement. They were called anti-sexist men's groups. These were the first men's gatherings. But then somewhere along the line, roughly in the 1970s, some guys got an idea in their mind and they said, wait a minute, we also need our own group. We can't just be supporting the burgeoning feminist movement. We can't be just actively involved in deconstructing the patriarchy, which is what they were doing at that time. We also need to find out more about the masculine spirit. So that's when they started uh, the mythopoetic men's movement, which began in the early 1980s. And by mythopoetic, that word refers to the uh, the tapping into old archetypes, old legends, old mythologies like the Grail stories, like Iron Hans, Iron John, and uh, drawing uh, wisdom from the old uh, warrior traditions, bringing them together. So that uh, is where the men's movement was born from. And uh, now you're right, it is much more accessible now, or everything's more accessible now, but uh, at that time, it was fairly popular back in the 1980s, but not to the extent it is it is now. And it's needed. It's needed because the masculine spirit can be enormously creative and it can be enormously destructive, as you know. So this is the time to do it. And so just just to kind of leave us and, and, and help us exit here, what is, you know, we, we talked about legacy a little bit here and, and in, you know, impact of what guys want to leave in the world. And what what does that look like for you? What is what does legacy piece look like for you specifically? Well, in my own case, uh, you know, I, I'm building a, a community here for men and have been for a long time. But for whatever reasons, in the last couple of years, it's sort of really taken off because uh, the millennial generation, you know, is ready for this stuff now. And it's clearly something they want and they're hungry for and they need. So I'm in the business of training leaders. You know, I've got several fine young guys in my community that are themselves moving into leadership positions. And that gives me great satisfaction to see that happening. Wonderful. So uh, we are doing some really good work. And um, again, this combination of the old schools of Knights Templar and the Mongols and the samurai and the Shaolin monks and extracting the very best of their qualities, throwing out the stuff that clearly doesn't work anymore, <laughs> uh, wasn't even very good back then, um, and combining that with uh, the need to address the unique challenges of the, of the 21st century man, what he, how he has to navigate this world of technological complexity. Yeah. 
Well, fantastic. I, I feel like uh, we, we took a, a little bit of a journey there and we, we touched on some historical, you know, facts and ideas and, and concepts. And I, that's hugely, hugely important. I think that, um, you know, that's going to be a, a massive amount of value to our listeners. So thanks very much for your time. And uh, thanks for being on the show. If you are interested in uh, actually, where can people find you? Last question. If they want to check out well, Samurai uh, Brotherhood. My men's communities, uh, we have a, a website, uh, SamuraiBrotherhood.com, SamuraiBrotherhood.com. And then I have my own website, ptmisselberger.com, and I've authored four books. Three of them are on Amazon, uh, Three Dangerous Magi, Root Awakening, and The Inner Light. And I'm also working on my fifth book right now. It's called The Way of the Conscious Warrior, and it's all about this stuff, and it's going to be coming out uh, next year. Wonderful. And um, so check check that out. Check out Phil's website. And if you need anything else, you can go to mantalks.com. Stay tuned for more conversations with inspiring men. And uh, we will see you or hear you next week. Thanks very much and have a fantastic week. 